Welcome back to another episode of Mentally Unscripted, your favorite podcast to hear two regular guys talk about interesting, complex topics and uh, learn new ways of discussing those topics. Uh, very excited to have you back today. I think we're going to have an awesome, awesome episode. This is this is going to be our, our second uh, endeavor into the crypto world, the Bitcoin world, and... Um, uh, super, super jazzed about this topic. I feel like I could talk about this topic all day and all night long because uh, it's just it's it's so fascinating. It changes so quickly. But uh, you know, before we get into that, Scott, how's your week going? Uh, it, it's it's going well. I can't complain. I got myself a new uh, mechanical keyboard here. Oh, oh, that's yeah, super exciting. Which, yeah, this is a this is a video or an audio only podcast. So Paul's the only one who can see this. But it uh you know has nice glowing red keys on it and uh it makes tons of noise <laughs> and i probably just disconnected myself from the internet there, oh, but, uh, well <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> scott will okay, be back still, in 20 years still on. after he gets yeah. back on um <laughs> yeah so so what made you get the so, new keyboard it looks red like the devil uh, yeah you know i just uh i just wanted the clickety clack of the old school uh typewriters oh okay so uh i got the uh, mechanical keyboard took the plunge so it's pretty cool. I like it. Nice. It, it makes me feel productive, even though I'm, you know, just doodling around on Twitter. There's, there's nothing better than faux productivity, right? I mean, just to, just to right, really yeah. feel like you've achieved something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's good. How about you? Uh, yeah. How's your week? I did not buy a new keyboard. Uh, I am, I'm, I'm trying to live off of my laptop as long as I can. I've decided I, the, the idea of having to get a new laptop. It's, it's like as I, as I age, the idea of getting new technology a new anything just starts to depress me a little bit unless I really need it. So um, I'm going to try and, and live on this laptop to, to my end of days. Um, if I didn't have to get another phone, I'd probably be happy. Uh, and it, which is, this is literally the exact opposite of who I used to be, right? I was, I was the person who always wanted the new technology. I wouldn't buy it. I would kind of constrain myself until I really felt I'd earned it. And now, uh, whether I've earned it or not, I don't want it. And to me, it's just another right, thing exactly. I have to worry about. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah. You used to be that guy that would just go lurk at Best Buy looking at all the new that, stuff, right. right? And then, yeah, never buying anything. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So. Oh, man. So, yeah, no, but uh, it's it's been a beautiful week here in Texas with the weather. And I'm able to meditate in the morning on the porch, uh, which is just awesome. And hear the birds that are going off and we have deer everywhere where we are i mean they're just they're constantly going around my my, my cousin he's just talking about how they they basically rule the roost you know, like you can't you can't can't beat them you see them everywhere and they, they they just jump fences like it's no bother at all i mean if they could you know if they could play basketball or do the do the long jump i mean they would crush us humans so uh, yeah <laughs> so it's uh just kind of like the government right feels like they can just go wherever they want and do whatever they wherever want. they want yeah exactly it's it's an example of the government um <laughs> oh what can you do what can you say um yeah you know offline we were talking about anarchy and sort of the stateless government and the uh you know having a government and it really does bring you back to uh thinking about what how much government do you really need um and uh, i'm sure there's there's different opinions on that but um but not today. We won't talk about that today. Today we're going to talk yes. about about Bitcoin. Stay tuned for a future podcast right. on anarchy. That's right. Um, so you know, our first uh, podcast on on uh, on Bitcoin was was a philosophical conversation about what it is and what what it 
what it means for uh, society. We really didn't want to spend time talking about price because I think that's where a lot of people land because they just see it as a pure investment vehicle. And not that that's a bad outcome. However, we're really more interested in sort of the um, the properties that make it valuable in the first place, right? Which I think comes out more in the philosophy of what it does, you know, providing a, a store of value um, outside of the current or legacy system and the uh, ability to provide some competition to our legacy governments. And I think that can be local, that can be state level, that can be uh, national, and that can even be super na- uh, super national, where uh, you start to see a, a uh, store of value. And I, I use that term loosely, not just in the monetary sense, but sort of this new area of value creation that can exist outside of traditional states, kind of like the internet does today, where it really has digitized so much of our life. Um, and so we wanted to continue that conversation, talk more about the challenges and risks to that. Uh, what we sort of see as um, the the environment as we start to move forward into this, uh, you know, the 2020s, and and how governments are going to react to um, to things like cryptocurrencies, but not just crypto. There's other innovations as well they're going to be challenged by. So I think some of the questions we have are, you know, what really gives Bitcoin and and perhaps other crypto assets or currencies value? Where do they derive their value from? Uh, what are the risks to to that? Uh, we started that conversation last time. I think we want to continue that. And, you know, where do we see this future evolving? What does this environment look like? Um, you know, but, but before we do that, if you haven't joined us already, we'd love for you to come out, uh, smash the like button if you're hearing us and listening to us on, on YouTube. Uh, let us know that you're out there. Uh, you, can, you can register uh to our mailing list on mentallyinscripted.com where we have a forthcoming (laughs) mailer that hasn't quite started yet, but we we will be launching that. And so, uh, and if if you're not there and you're listening to us on on a podcast engine like Spotify or, or, or Apple, uh, give us a comment, give us a like, we'd love to hear what you, what your thoughts are, uh, what we're missing, what we're talking about, and just, you know, uh, general thoughts on the content. We'd love to hear from you. Um, Scott, anything you want to add before we dive into this? Uh, no, uh, just uh, yeah, get out to our website, sign up for the mail list, and we will get that newsletter going uh, in the near future. Yeah. All right. So, value, right? The 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 term that is, I think, on a lot of people's minds if they're thinking about investing. Uh, t- certainly, they think about it when they think about their money, uh, and v- the question is what gives value to Bitcoin? What gives value to, to cryptocurrencies? But that's, we can just talk about Bitcoin specifically. Um, and uh, so I want to start with th- that question. I want to start with a little bit of the history of where Bitcoin's price came from, because I, th- I think it does sort of lead into the evolution of what we think about from value, right? So uh, Bitcoin is launched in 2009 as I think really an experiment uh, by people that what they call themselves kind of the, the, the cypher punks or the crypto punks. And those are people that uh, believe in sort of the privacy of the individual. They believe in uh, individuals having their own sovereignty. And part of that includes having their own money. 
And so this this project is launched. It's called Bitcoin. It's launched with a white paper, and there's just a few people that are uh, communicating. Um, there's Satoshi Nakamoto, which is the synonymous name for the publisher or publishers of the white paper. And there is a, a man named Hal Finney, who is part of this cypherpunk uh, group. And they start communicating and, and exchanging uh, the, the initial Bitcoins. And so Satoshi is believed to have done the first uh, node um, of the Bitcoin network and creates the first block. Uh, and then, so so with that, you have this, this network that's born with a single node. And then from there, you start to see uh, the communication of this this new protocol is out there. They start uh, other people start building out nodes with the software, and they start moving this token around. Word in in Silicon Valley is that this this new token, you know, Bitcoin, is available, and uh, people start buying it physically. Right, people start wanting to to buy it, and pe- the people that have always been wanting money, a digital money, are hearing about this and say, "I want to get my hands on it." So um, they're they're trying to buy it at um, you know off of people's hard drives, and at some point, and I, I don't know the exact date, at some point, a, a newspaper, I believe it's in Pennsylvania, actually calculates the cost of minting a Bitcoin based on energy consumption and hardware, and so they actually publish that price in the paper. And that becomes, I think, the first time that someone talks about a price, and it's based on the cost inputs of it, right? Uh, a couple of cents per per Bitcoin, and then uh, that sort of is the starting point for the price discovery, which is more of a cost model. And then you have the initial um, marketplaces that start to trade in it. And Mount Gox, I think, is is the primary, and it was based in Japan. And they start listing Bitcoin on this exchange. And then you really see more price discovery as people are buying and selling it. And so then it moved from more of a, a cost-based view of just the price for the product. And then it moved into more of a market dynamic of, of supply and demand. And and then that's really has continued on uh, where you do see people talk about the hash rate, uh, which is the computing power required to actually mine new Bitcoin. Uh, but then you combine that with the market forces, people that believe in the in the power of a decentralized protocol and storing um, information or value in, in a decentralized protocol for, for future spending or just, you know, there's a variety of other use cases as well. So that's, the, that's sort of the price journey as I understand it. Uh, but when you get into value, it's more nebulous. And I think there's a conversation about what is value in, in the current, environment right to us um how do we look at that do we just price it in dollars um is it more abstract than that and and i think that there's there's probably some layers of abstraction obviously it's a little bit more personal depending on the person but i guess uh scott from your perspective when we talk about value um what you know what do you think of value when you think about cryptocurrencies and why why it does or doesn't have value yeah yeah my Thinking on this has changed since I've, I've started to go deeper down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Uh, initially, I was one of the people who thought it's it's ones and zeros. It's nothing. There's nothing. There's no underlying value there. So how can this thing be worth anything? How, how can this just entry on your computer screen have any value? Then I started reading into it more. And 
I discovered there, there's two ways you can look at value, right? There's subjective value, there's objective value. So if you look at value as being subjective, right, that takes you part of the way there. That that just the fact that other people look at this and see that it has value and they agree that it has value means it has value. Yeah. Okay. And it doesn't matter that you don't value it. It only matters that there's enough people in the world who do value mm-hmm. it. So I think that's the first step. Then I was looking into it a little bit more. And something that was interesting is I saw a, a bit of a history of gold, gold moving up to the point where it's at. So a lot of the arguments for the the anti-crypto pro-gold crowd are that gold has gold has intrinsic value outside of its use as a store of, of value. So, so you, you use gold in electronics, you can use it in jewelry, it's pretty, people value it. But gold has reached the point where if we were to strip all that away, it's so well established as a store of value that I think people would continue to use it as a store of value. Right. So over time, it's decoupled itself from its functional uses. Mm-hmm. But it was those functional uses that got it, got the ball rolling, so to speak. Right. And it was those functional uses that helped determine the value on day one of what gold gold is. And that's where that's that's where crypto and Bitcoin separates from gold because crypto doesn't have any other value to it or intrinsic intrinsic use or other use like gold does. So how in the world do we value what what Bitcoin was worth on day one? Mm-hmm. Right? How do we know? Right. Well, so off of what I was reading, basically the argument was, well, it doesn't matter because it has value now. Yeah. Right. So if we determine today's value based off of yesterday's value and other factors that are getting built into that changes in the market and whatnot, we don't it, we don't care where the first day's value came from. We only care that it had value the day before. Yeah, it sort of bootstrapped its um, value, right? Right, right. Um, so I think Bitcoin is maybe still in that precarious position where if tomorrow suddenly everybody just decided it didn't have value, then it would hit zero. Mm-hmm. It's not like gold where it's reached that tipping point to where it's going to st- it's, it's going to hold on to its status as a store of value. Right. Uh, but I could see that happening. Uh, now, how long that would take, I don't know. And I know we're going to talk about the risks, but yeah, governments could step in and implement regulations that would help destroy the value. I mean, any number of things could come along. Uh, it could come, it can help destroy that sort of, I, I always thought of it as a group illusion, mm-hmm. right? Just a bunch of people thinking that this this digital currency, this entry of ones and zeros on a what is essentially a distributed database has value. Mm-hmm. And we could collectively decide tomorrow that, yeah, it no longer has value. So um, like I said, that's, that's one of the risks. But where we're sitting at now, uh, I think it does have value because it had value yesterday. And the fact that we don't really have that same starting point and that underlying the underlying intrinsic functionality like gold has, uh, and I think we're past the point where that matters. Yeah. The fact is, is that it's been adopted and people are treating it as though it has value. Yeah. With the caveat that, you know, that value is is highly volatile and it can be, you know, ripped away, I think. I mean, we've seen how fast the world moves these days. I mean, a new... Bitcoin Plus could pop up tomorrow and suddenly just drive Bitcoin out of the market. Yeah, so I, I think there's something really interesting for people to to reflect on, which is that 
when we talk about value, the, the model that, that Scott is giving is there's intrinsic and extrinsic. That, that's the terminology we would use in pricing for an option, you know, kind of using that, uh, that, that terminology. Um, and which I, th- I think maps pretty nicely to your subjective or objective kind of viewpoint. You know, simply put, you've got a car, right? Let's uh, say that's that's on a lot and it's twenty thousand uh, dollars. Is the price they, they you know the the manufacturer has has made that car? They've transported it. They have a certain markup on it to have a profit, and um, so that's that's what they're pricing it at, right? That car to you uh, may take you to your job, which is paying $100,000, right? And you are able to have the freedom that it takes to get there on time, maintain that job, right? Um, is the car, you know, is the car only worth 20000 to you or is it something else, right? So that's kind of this, this extrinsic value that you may put on the value of having that car that may be above the 20000 At some point later on, maybe Blue Book is going to tell you, well, the car is only worth $5,000 now. Right, but it could have sentimental value to you because it's the first job that you ever, or the first car that you ever had. Right? Maybe you're willing to invest five thousand dollars in bringing it up to mint condition, even though Kelly Blue Book says, "Well, it's not worth that much," because you see more value in it. Right? Uh, and so there, there's there's the concept of what you value, and there's a concept of what needs to be valued in a marketplace. Right? Uh, you know, gold, even even gold. Uh, if, if you're the last person on earth, there's no one to sell to that gold is, is worth zero, right? Other than what you can use it for. So if you're, if you're melting it down and using electronics on your own, or if you, um, are sitting on it as a, as a seat, right? The, the value shifts based on the, the number of, of, uh, market participants that are, that are looking at this, um, this product in the same way. Uh, so there's, there's a, there's really just a, a, a simple way of, Simple, but but also nuanced way of looking at value. So you have this the, sort of the actual utility of the product and sort of the, the other value that you place on top of that for a variety of reasons. And uh, I think that's a really nice way of looking at, as you said, uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, because a lot of it is really going to be on that e- e- extrinsic side, right? Of, of, you know, especially if you're, let's say you, you look at Bitcoin, you say, okay, I can store value in it, right? There's a lot of utility there for me if it actually maintains its price stability or its its price value over time. Uh, that, that's that's going to have a certain premium over putting into the bank, which has a negative interest rate. Um and then maybe on these other types of digital assets, I, I think that they're, they're going to have value over time as they start to eat away at other aspects and other software uh, in, our, um, in our economy. So you, you put more of a premium on the, the, the price uh, because of speculation. So that's another type of sort of value lens you can look at. Uh, but, uh, you know, really coming back to it, without other people in the marketplace, do, do you have value? I mean, really, I mean, I I can't see any value extrinsically if no one else is in the marketplace. It really is just intrinsic value um, that is, you know, if it's a car, it drives somewhere, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, if value is truly subjective, then yeah, it would still have value. Um, So even if you were the last person left on earth and there was no one to sell your gold to, if you still thought gold was pretty and you wanted to make necklaces and bracelets out of it, right? It would still have value to you. Absolutely. Um, so, and I think that's one of the one of the core principles that really drives Bitcoin is that 
yeah, subjectively, there is a group of people out there who believe it has value. Mm -hmm. And the more adoption it gets, the more people who are going to start to believe that it has value. So it's going to be a, a, a positive feedback loop. As more people believe it has value, its value is going to increase. And more people believe it has value, its value will increase. Yep. And it's just going to be a cycle. So, and, and you know, so when, yeah, so when we talk about, you know, how high can Bitcoin go? Well, I don't think we've even come close to the critical mass yet. And, and folks, this is not investment no. advice. <laughs> Please <laughs> don't listen to me. I'm just some dumb guy in Colorado who's, who's, <laughs> who's pontificating on things. Um, but I think Bitcoin, as as it gets more adoption and as it establishes itself as a dominant player in the marketplace and it avoids government regulation, I, I think it's just going to keep going up and up and up. The big question, though, is getting the adoption. I think that's the the driving force behind it. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. yeah, and I think that adoption is going to be easier again because it's subjective. Right. So as long as people believe it has value, it has value. Yep. I, I, I think you're right. And I, I think for the audience here, a great question to ask is how much are you willing to invest in a, a product um, or a commodity how, or an asset, whatever you want to call it, that is, is based on those dynamics and understanding those dynamics, right? Uh, rather than a pundit or some other commentator saying, well, it's, it's worth this. Right. Realize that there's these dynamics at play uh, that are, you know, that's how we, we price it. Right. And, and there's there's a meme in the Bitcoin community, especially in the maximalist community, you know, which is how much value is one Bitcoin worth? Well, it's worth one Bitcoin. Right. I don't care about your dollars. I, you know, stay stay poor with your dollars. I've got something more valuable. Yeah. They they clearly see more value, I think, than someone who who's more a speculative investor who says, listen, I, I think this could have you know more of that sustainability value uh over time, but it's it's not quite there yet, right? Um yeah. and so yeah, it's it's I think those are good questions. So okay, so so yeah. yeah. So what were you gonna say? Oh yeah, I was just gonna just gonna jump in there with a couple points. Um one argument that I read for Bitcoin having value too, and this goes along with the subjective value, is the fact that you're giving up value for it. So you're paying fifty thousand dollars for a Bitcoin. Therefore, that Bitcoin is worth fifty thousand um, dollars. I think arguments can be made either way, yep. um, but again, it's subjective. So I may think the Bitcoin's worth fifty thousand. You may think Bitcoin is only worth twenty thousand. So you, you know, you would look at that Bitcoin as being or you would look at that transaction as being a money losing transaction. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm losing my train of thought here. Okay. Well, let's go ahead. Yeah. I might, might, it might come back to no, me. That's, I um, think, I, but I, I think this is good. Uh, these are the types of questions people would ask. I have so many people that have reached out to me in the last couple, several months asking me about investing. And um, when you ask some of these types of questions, they can't answer it. There's, there's more of an emotional fear of missing out or having FOMO of being, you know, missing out on the big new hot thing. And while I appreciate that emotion, it's, it's can also be harmful because it can force you or, or cause you to make irrational or rush decisions. And it, it doesn't need to be that way. Um, there, are, you will always have missed more opportunities to uh, become wealthy than you will have one on. That is the nature of life. Um, there will always be opportunities around you and you, you'll miss them. And, and uh, if you're 
if you're able to, to look back without regrets, then you're, you're just going to have a more satisfying life in my opinion. Um, then on the flip side of that, I think it's, it's, it is about having, um, a, a stand and a viewpoint on what it makes, you know, what is the value that we see in, in the marketplace? Yeah. Yeah. And don't, don't get caught up like one of the topics we have on here is, you know, talking about the Bitcoin or the blockchain hype. But I've noticed folks on uh, CNBC and on Twitter, you know, they're they're really trying to play on that FOMO to get you into the market. Because right now, you know, the Bitcoin market is for as much news as it has, it's still fairly small. And so, like I said, as more people get in and adoption becomes wider, uh, the value is just going to go up, I think. And it's got a long way to go. I mean, there's a lot of room for growth there. So it's to it's to the benefit of the people who already own Bitcoin to try and get as many people into the market as right. possible. So they're going they're going to play on that fear of missing out. Yeah. And they're going to tell you that, you know, Bitcoin's gonna to go to a million, two million, ten million, you know, who knows? Yeah. And because they need people coming into the market because that well, that, that power is what's right. going to drive the value. And and it, 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 part of it is just pr- price speculation. Those who want to see the value go to the mu- the moon and and be able to sell, I think there's there's another side of it too of the maximalists that say you know we need we need more of a competition with for the government and for other assets so they return more value. And I think as we talk about sort of government responses with MMT and other types of spending and taxes. That that argument, I think, is is going to gain more more value and weight for, for for folks rather than just the pure speculation. Um, but with any asset, I mean, you're looking to buy in and sell it for a higher price at a later point in time. That is that's the nature of investing. So uh, certainly, I, I think I mean it's it's completely irrational to want the price to go up as well. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's don't, don't FOMO. That's that's what we're trying to really say. Don't FOMO. <laughs> so yeah, yeah um okay so let's let's talk more about risks why why this network could or this concept could maybe perhaps never materialize the way that these proponents and these pundits are really saying it will uh you know what are some of the risks that we see to the adoption of bitcoin um and i, I don't know scott do you want to kick this off well, I, I think there's a lot. Uh, number one, and this is actually the point I was trying to remember earlier, but I think it fits in nicely here, is when we talk about Bitcoin, initially, at least my reading of it was that it was promised as a, it would eventually become a money, right? Something that you could, you know, you could go to Starbucks and pay for a cup of coffee with your Bitcoin. And like you mentioned, the Bitcoin maximalists, right? They think of everything in terms of Bitcoin. One Bitcoin's worth one Bitcoin. Um, And as long as we're thinking of Bitcoin in terms of dollars, it's not really a money. Mm -hmm. And it's just going to be a store of value. It's a way to hedge against rising inflation, devaluation of the dollar, uh, those types of economic impacts. And I think that's going to be a risk to adoption because people are just going to view it as, like you said, a speculative asset. Right. Um, or when it's less speculative, you know, more of a protection against uh, inflation or other economic shocks. So I think that's going to slow adoption. 
So as, as long as Bitcoin is is not a money or we're not thinking of it as money, we're not thinking of pizzas and cups of coffee in terms of Bitcoin, I think a lot of people are going to be hesitant to invest in mm-hmm. it or to, to buy it and start using it. So I think it's really important for, like we mentioned on the last podcast, to get that second layer on there that that would ride on top of Bitcoin and be our, our money, right. our way of paying for things. Um, so I see that as one big risk. Um, and what do you think about that? I know you you know a little bit more about the plans around mm-hmm. Bitcoin and some of the some of the ideas of their future growth. So what do you think about? Yeah, that? I, I it's a great question of how do you have a economic system? So does it look just like gold today, where basically people buy gold, they have it sitting in a shelf, and maybe. At some point, when they need some uh, some dollars, they sell some of that gold for dollars, right? Or does it look more um, like a, a, a next generation of that, where you have the the frictionless way to spend it, right? And um, in that frictionless way, means that you know I've got some asset, let's just call it Bitcoin, and I'm able to use a credit card uh, or I'm able to use my phone. I'm able to spend it in a very seamless way. And I actually have the desire to do that. Now, the price appreciation is such that you know if I spend it today, it would have been worth more tomorrow. And I believe there's a there's a law, Grisham's law, and I'm not sure if it's it's actually a law, right? Remember when people call things laws, there's there's only a few of them, and most of them came from Newton. But uh, <laughs> um, so, but you're not talking about John Grisham, the author, right? This isn't no, no, yeah, it was. Sorry, that was ba- bad. Bad joke. Folks, joke. Sorry, um, but it, it's this concept that that good money pushes out bad money, right? That um, you, you'll spend all the bad money or the money that's that's losing value, and you will retain the good money that's actually appreciating, right? Uh, so if you if you've got dollars or you've got bitcoins, you've got cash or you've got bitcoin or you've got cash or you've got gold, you're going to spend the cash. It's losing value. Inflation's taking a bit of it, so you're going to get rid of it. Um, so I, I think that there it's it's unknown to me what that what that next layer looks like. There's there's Lightning Network, which is a it's a concept, it's a project to actually be able to do hyper fast um, transactions. And what they call layer two, right? So it's this, it's this layer, uh, it's a network that sits. Well, they say sits on top of Bitcoin, but basically it settles in Bitcoin. You credit this this network, and then you can send transactions, very small transactions, um, and what they call lightning fast, right? And that's the whole idea, the the branding of Lightning Network, and it was supposed to solve uh, the the challenge of being able to send only a number of transactions per minute, right? So the blocks are limited to, to Bitcoin to only four megabytes. You can only put so much information into those blocks. And so you can only settle so many blocks every 10 minutes, uh, which is the, the processing cycle time for for uh, for the Bitcoin network. So they said, well, let's, let's kind of build on top of that, this network that, that can settle instantly. We kind of use a credit system um, for, for the account. And we use some other types of, um, let's just call it math to avoid the double spin problem. Double spin problem is, is simply I pay John, um, and then I pay, I pay Mary, right. And, and because it's digital and because they don't have visibility into me paying, I'm able to pay them both in the digital space. Um, I can't do that once I, in the, in the real world, if I, if I have a dollar and I give it to John, I can't then, you know, pretend that I have that same dollar and give it to Mary. Um, but in the digital space, if there's no controls, 
um, there, uh, like, like there is with the, the proof of stake or sorry, the proof of work, um, algorithm, which actually processes and looks at your, your accounts and the, and the unspent blocks, um, you can, um, if, unless I have some kind of, uh, system like that, I can double spend. So, uh, lightning Networks is supposed to do that. Uh, however, it, it's, it's not quite there yet, right? Um, you just, I think technologically speaking, they've, they've been working on this for four years. There's still some, some technical challenges and innovation hurdles that they haven't met. Um, I think from a trust perspective, there's still a lot of questions. Are we seeing a network that we feel comfortable putting a hundred dollars in or $200 in? Cause I'm spending this on a regular basis, more like a Venmo account, right? Because I don't have the insurance. I don't have the other types of guarantees that the, the network, uh, will, will guarantee my funds. So, um, that, that, that's one area, right? That, so, so we talked about sort of different ways you could see this evolving as more like, you know, the gold, gold scenario. Uh, you've got sort of this light, lightning network. And then you have this third kind of option, which is like the Coinbase view, which looks a little bit more like our existing world, right? Coinbase, maybe you're using that. You have some of your tokens on there and they offer different fi- kind of financial products. And so they're, they're acting as the layer two. Uh, it doesn't really fit the crypto punk view of what you should be doing, which is you have sovereignty by having your own tokens. It's in your wallet. However, it provides less friction than, um, uh, than, you know, sort of that initial gold one where I have to go find somebody to, to buy my gold. And, you know, the, the, that version is more like what ARC suggests may happen where you, wallet, the growth of these digital wallets will be the layer two. And, um, as, as wallets are, are dispersed on your phone and everyone sort of has access to these wallets that will address that risk, right? That, that we can never actually get a critical mass at the, at the end user or the retail level. Um, you know, we'll have to see. Uh, which three of those or, or if any of those come to light, uh, we'll just, we'll have to see. Um, I think it's a risk. Absolutely. I think, I think that actually ties in nicely to complexity, user complexity as a real risk to adoption. Uh, you know, it's been 10 years, uh, since the network has been up and, and running or, you know, since 2009, so a little bit longer. And, the biggest complaint I have for new people coming into the space is the complexity of having to understand how to use a hardware wallet. Uh, the The user experience just isn't friendly. Uh, how do I store my keys in a safe way? There's all this complexity that you just don't have to deal with in the traditional markets. They, they, they've abstracted all that complexity out of it and given you a better user experience. So, you know, if you're looking for the... Um, the younger or let's just say any generation to adopt something, it, the, the more complex it is, as we know, right? We talk about, you know, the performance scores or the NPS score for user performance. People need a way that is frictionless to be able to interact with it. You know, are we able to, to, to finally solve that so that people feel confident that they're not going to make, make a mistake and send the wrong token to the wrong address and all of a sudden lose their money, Right. That, that to me is something that hasn't been solved in 10 years. And the question is, is it going to be solved in the next 10, right? Um, because if that doesn't get solved, it's hard to see how you get critical mass to some of these numbers that everyone keeps on talking about. Yeah, exactly. And one thing that I think is interesting is 
one of the things that's being touted for Bitcoin is its security. Mm-hmm. Well, the security is also what makes it complex. Yep. So in making it less complex, you're giving up some security. So uh, if you're storing your Bitcoins, your cryptos on your own hardware wallet and you lose the password, uh, you're, you're SOL. Yep. Whereas if you're storing it on Coinbase, right, Coinbase, you lose your Coinbase password, Coinbase has a, a, uh, the ability for you to, to get back into your account. Yep. So you're giving up some compute, some security for the ease of mind of knowing that, yeah, if you, you know, your computer crashes and your password goes bye-bye, right, you're still going to be able to get into your account. But because it's stored online uh, in Coinbase, right, it's more vulnerable to attack. Mm-hmm. Coinbase could always be right. hacked. Um, so, yeah, there's, so there's trade-offs. Yeah, and, and yeah, that's another point that's uh, sort of this unknown which is are the masses willing to take on responsibility right for that security for yes. that uh, the 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 freedom that comes with it and I think that's a real unknown and and I think there's a great argument that says they're not they're not ready for that right or is the government willing to let people take on that responsibility because right. um, uh, I can see some crazy regulation coming down the line so that even if you have your your keys or your crypto stored on a hardware wallet and you lose your wallet or your password right the government's still going to make somebody pay you right um you know or there will be some insurance companies that are you know going to be be repaying you or something i don't know um so yeah that's a lot of i think that's a lot of good questions it, it's going to be interesting to see how it all starts to play yeah. out but yeah, ease of use, I think, is one of the big, big risks to adoption. And um, the volatility, I think, is still a risk. Uh, you know, we're not at the point yet where Starbucks is going to price its menu in Bitcoins <laughs> because right. the value of the Bitcoin just changes so much and they still think in terms of dollars. Right. Um, so they would be changing their menu every <laughs> every 10, 15 minutes, probably updating it to reflect new Bitcoin prices. Right. And remember, when you buy stuff with Bitcoin online, I mean, you're still you're still buying something that's priced in yeah. dollars. It's just that the company's accepting the Bitcoin that they're going at the current exchange right. rate, essentially is what it is. That's why you only have, you know, like 10 or 15 minutes to send the Bitcoin to them uh, because they want to lock in that exchange rate. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and as long as we're there, right, we're, we're, we're not going to be looking at Bitcoin as actual money until we get to the point where we're thinking of things in terms of Bitcoin. Right. Uh, yeah. And that's, that actually gets into one of the, the biggest concerns and risks that I, I hear people raise, which is that, you know, will the government, governments just outright ban Bitcoin and other cryptos? And it's, it's a great question because anybody who has read financial history of the 20th century, they know that governments banned citizens from owning gold in the United States and they actually confiscated it. They have banned other types of financial products in different jurisdictions. And it's so, so when you're, you're looking at, at a, a product that in, in many ways could be a competitor to governments, the question is, will they just ban it outright? And you know, I, the responses here really vary, right? You have those who are very skeptical of crypto that will say it, it when it when it reaches critical mass, they'll just ban it. 
Uh, and I, I think that's that is a a possibility. I I I find it less likely as time moves forward, uh, and I, I can share my thoughts why. Uh, but that's a possibility. Then you have this other one, which is the full end of the spectrum, other end that says, well, governments that adopt these tokens uh, will actually see benefits for their economy if they do it at a central bank level. Um, if they if they store it as as part of their reserves uh, and um, you know, right now we're seeing this play out in real time with conversations in India about whether or not they should ban cryptocurrencies. And you have politicians that have come out and really been trying to push the narrative that we need to ban these for our sovereignty, for our people. And you have some of the largest technology uh, providers in, in the country saying the opposite, saying that, that crypto is a, a force for good in the Indian economy. And... Um, you know that that's I, I, that's still a risk, right? That people need to be made aware of. That it's it's possible that a, a ban of some kind, which could either be through an outright ban, you can't own it, you can't trade it, could be that we're going to tax any transaction at a certain amount, could be um, you know uh, some other method or a combination thereof. That 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 is a risk. I mean. Scott, from your perspective, how do you think about that risk? Yeah, I, I'm at the point where I don't think, at least in the U.S., that the government is going to outright ban it. I think they will heavily regulate yeah. it um, because I think the U.S., I think they, it still holds out this this image of being the land of the free, right? Oh, we're going to let people have crypto, but we're going to heavily regulate it to, and I'm doing scare quotes here, protect us, right. you know, protect our people, yeah. right? Um, just look at things like the anti-money uh, money laundering laws, right? If, if banks or financial institutions violate these laws, they're, they're pretty onerous and the fines are incredible. And I could see that if it hasn't, you, maybe you know this, I, I've heard some talk about those laws moving into the crypto mm-hmm. world, but I don't know if they have moved into the crypto world yet or in what way. Um, but you know the 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 exchanges like Coinbase, right? They're going to have to comply with right. all of that, and people may not want to jump through the hoops to deal with it. And Coinbase, because of the compliance costs, again, they may not want to deal with people with small accounts because it may not be worth it to them to spend all that money on compliance if they're not getting a lot out of the of that user. Right. Um, so that could be a risk to adoption. And at that point, you know, then people are going to start resorting to a black market, um, you know, cause you can, you can transfer Bitcoins to each other without going through an exchange. Right. You know, you could, you could always make arrangements to meet at a Starbucks or something and, and trade Bitcoins <laughs> yeah. or, you know, you know, uh, you know, buy something with Bitcoin. Uh, so I think like anything else that the government tries to regulate, I think it's going to, potentially give rise to a black market. So even if the government does ban it or heavily regulate it, I think it's, it's still going to be around, but the nature of its existence is going Mm -hmm. to change. Um, But I, yeah, I, because it's gotten so much adoption, I just, I don't see the federal government or the U S government actually just, just outright banning it. And I know one of the other arguments is that, I know some folks in the Liberty community, they think the government wants to go to all electronic money. So 
it can number one easily track you and what you're doing yeah. it can see where you're spending your money what you're spending your money on but number two if it doesn't like something you can do it can just shut off your bank account in in a second right and it right. doesn't have to deal with you carrying around that you know that pesky cash that you can yeah. use to, to to survive on um so i could see that being a possibility where the government is going to want more uh, transparency into what's happening on the bitcoin network yeah and i think some of the more liberty-minded folks they may balk at that they may balk at buying bitcoin because of that but again you know is that community large enough to actually sway people from adopting bitcoin and moving over to something like monero that's a more privacy focused crypto right. i i don't know uh, one thing is, is uh, just, yeah, one more quick yeah. point is I think it's one of those situations where if the government regulates Bitcoin too much, people are just going to start moving into something else. Like some developer is going to come up with another crypto that's that, that sort of is able to circumvent those regulations in some right. way. And people might just keep keep moving and trying to stay one step ahead of of the government. But overall, that's going to damage the, the overall adoption of crypto yeah. because – uh, you know, like older people are like we mentioned on the last podcast, right? It's like, man, I just figured out Bitcoin. Now you want me to learn something new? Come <laughs> <That's> on, <right. laughs> you know. Uh, so people are going to be like, yeah, I'm just going back to the dollar. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think um, I, if I had to put a percentage on it, I'd probably say there's a there's a 15% chance or less that they ban it outright. And there's a 75% chance that they just, um, or 85% chance they just move into regulation because there's, there's a variety of reasons for that. I think part of it is a tradition and, and this is us based. There's that tradition that you talked about of, you know, can we, can we really make the argument that it's, it's a, a security threat against the United States or our, our sovereignty? You know, we, we allow people to own gold now. Um, and we broke that standard. So what what is it saying if we ban this this sort of you know this crypto uh, money that doesn't really have um, value or you know what, what, what the messaging on it becomes really unclear, right? Um, whereas if I if I move in to regulate it, I can I can talk about how I'm an innovator, how I'm I'm helping uh, the you know cyber world grow, and you know a good example we, we were talking about this offline that. You know, there was a Arc uh, Capital put out a research paper done, I think, with Square, where they talked about being able to use Bitcoin miners, do proof of work processing off of excess energy from solar panels, so that you could help defray some of the cost of installing a solar panel and get the you know the the value of uh, of um, uh, get, get 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 more value for the network. So your your Bitcoin uh, mining rig is is actually kind of a, a battery as a, in terms of value, not in terms of actual energy. Um, you could you know all your excess solar power you go into mining uh, because you can't put it back on the network and you don't actually have a battery. Then when you actually need to buy energy, you could you could spend some of that Bitcoin to to buy the energy, or you could um, you know sell it off and, and use that cash for something else. Um, you start to have these different innovations and ideas that could potentially uh, change the way the politicians want to see these types of assets, right? And the, and the value and utility of them. So I, I just think that the risk is lower than it, than it has been. 
Um, and then, you know, there's, there's obviously the people that argue, well, even if you ban it, adoption will, will continue to rise. I think that's, while that could be true, you know, it, it certainly would, would bring down the adoption rate substantially. Um, and that's just, you know, the nature of, um, uh, I think, you know, the nature of when, when the government bans something, yes, people may still want it. I mean, we see that with illegal drugs, right? Uh, but it, it certainly increases the cost of, of acquiring it and using it. Um, so that, you know, not necessarily a good thing for adoption. Um, so I, I guess, you know, what other key risks? I mean, there's technical risks that a lot of people are going to talk about, right? They, they talk about 51% attacks and, you know, that's the concept that if you're able to, to have control over 51% of the hashing network. So this would be the mining rigs that actually process um, the the Bitcoin network. If you had access to 51% of that, then you could potentially corrupt the network. And so it's, it's called a 51% attack. And a lot of people that are anti-crypto will point to this as a problem. They'll say, well, look, you know, m- many of these miners are in China. Uh, they are, um, you know, uh, they could be shut down by the government, um, and we, you know, China could potentially take over the network, right? Um, you know that that is that is a risk. Uh, I think that's that's a technical one that that a lot of the, the technical folks who fo- focus on crypto they kind of they they there's a lot of debate on that one, frankly. Uh, I don't know what the what the actual cost of that would be, but realize as soon as you dest- destroy the network, all value in it eventually goes away. Right, so let's say you put four billion into destroying that network. It's not like you actually get to steal the network and then reuse it and respend it. The value of that network would go from you know, today Bitcoin's valued at a trillion dollars. You spent four to five billion to destroy a one trillion dollar network, um, yeah, but you don't get to, to recapture any of the, that money, right? Because the network's gone, and you can't just put a, in a new network in its place. So there's there's some other dynamics there that make it. Pro, cost prohibitive, not impossible, but cost prohibitive. And then there's other questions about what the response would be from the crypto community. Um, would they just create a fork? Would they uh, would would money just go into one of these other cryptos like Ethereum, like a smart contract? Uh, would they would they sort of create that fork and do proof of stake based on new knowledge about how proof of stake works? I don't know. Um, we we don't know. It's kind of a new frontier. It I think there's technical risks that do exist. It's just hard to say whether or not they um, what kind of risk they should play into how you, you know, sort of value the network. Yeah, I, those are good points. And first off, I think the idea of a 51% attack would make a good, good movie <laughs> yeah. or good novel. Um, it'd be good, uh, some entertaining uh, uh, literature there. Um, one thing that I would say, though, is would it be possible, and I don't know the answer to this, but would it be possible for China to take control of 51% of the network, start voting in changes that benefit China, but doing it very subtly so people don't know that China's controlling the network? Well, yeah. So so if you, you mean at the, at the code level? Right. So if, if someone wants to make a change to Bitcoin, like increase the number of Bitcoins. Right. So that above 21 million. So to basically create an inflation environment, right? 51% of the network has to agree. Yes. Right. And so the the idea behind a 51% attack is that if you control 51% of the network, you you essentially control the network. You control the, yeah. So so that's, that's a very discreet type of attack in which you would go to original blocks 
and change the way, uh, basically where they, they spent. Right? So they could use me. I, I don't know, like this is a layer below my technical understanding of exactly how they would move, like maybe unspent blocks, but think of it like they would change the accounting from five years ago, right? They go in and they, they change the accounting that says, okay, you have a Bitcoin in this address. No, you no longer have that. It's somewhere else. Um, from a code perspective though, um, that's a little bit different, right? Uh, so the way that code is introduced into the Bitcoin network today is extremely slow and painful, honestly. Um, there is a process called a BIP process, which is a Bitcoin improvement proposal. And that's that's run by a, um, a company. Um, I think it's, uh, oh, geez, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, they, they kind of administer that process, right? Uh, of accepting proposals, it used, I think it, it's on one of the the online um, forums for open source programming, uh, uh, and you 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 can submit any proposal you want, and uh, you know a, a, a series of developers will will look at that and 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 basically the, the community of developers at some point have to agree that the um, that they want to introduce that that proposal into the the code. And then from there, they're going to, um, if, if they come to agreement, they have a series of conferences and discussions between different developers. Uh, they'll, they'll talk about introducing that code into the network and they'll, they'll talk to a series of miners. It's, it's a very, actually very disorganized. It sounds organized when I talk about having a bit pro- proposal process. But it's it's unclear for for those on the network who say, well, wait a second, how exactly do you come to agreement on what actually goes into the code? Um, and it's I don't think it's necessarily opaque, but it's it's just unclear. Um, so you know, if they would have to take over the the development community to actually be able to um, to say, okay, we're going to write a proposal, let's say, to change to take off the twenty one million limit. And the, the next problem with that is that all the miners have to agree to, um, they have to agree to uh, actually put that code on their mining kits, right? So if, let's say the developers introduce a piece of code and they say, okay, it has this, this bit proposal in it, they, and they say this goes against the, the core, uh, you know, the value proposition of why we mine, they won't adopt it. So you've got you've got the developers that are actually building the code, you've got the miners, and then you've got the users. And you know, a good question is, well, how do users get a say in all this? Well, theoretically, they, they don't. They they vote with their dollars. If they're going to sell off their their Bitcoin uh, because they're aware of these changes, and they don't like them, then they can do that. If they think the changes are good, or maybe they're indifferent, they can they can retain the token. But um, I I think the risk of invasive mindsets that would change the core philosophy while it does exist i think it's relatively low i don't think that's the attack vector i would expect to actually bring down the network um i think a a, a bigger problem would be more of the adoption complexity if i had to rank them right um i think the regulation suffocation could be kind of a, a significant risk to adoption i think complexity is probably above that i think the technical Issues are real and valid, but they're more, um, I think what we're seeing is 11 years in, we're not really seeing them. uh, It becomes more and more costly to attack the Bitcoin network every single day. 
And so the fact that it hasn't really been, there's been no successful attacks to date. At some point, yes, I think governments could coordinate an attack, but um, it becomes more difficult to do that. So then you kind of say that as it's a lower probability outcome for for a risk. Um, and then, you know, the, the other one of, of just, uh, you know, does the core philosophy change because you have sort of this mind virus that, that comes into the Bitcoin community or other crypto communities? I, I think that is that's not um, I think it's a lower probability. So and again, I'm, I'm obviously very pro. I want people to know what the risks are. Uh, but I also say I think that there's, um, you know, when I think about these risks in general, I don't think they're that they're insurmountable or things that should that should prevent you from having some exposure. I, I think there's another risk too. They're just having no exposure at all to to Bitcoin going forward. Uh, is is it's a different kind of risk, but it, it speaks to the broader changes that we're seeing in our um, in our economic landscape. So um, yeah, long long, long response to a, a short question. <laughs> right. Yeah, and let's you know not forget. Let's just look at our current world. If you're concerned about one country uh, controlling a major a major portion of the world financial system, I mean, just look at the U.S. and how much control it exerts yeah. over the world um, through uh, through the uh, the dollar's use as a, the reserve currency and through its control of the SWIFT banking system. Um, you know, and it, it exerts significant control over international transactions, domestic transactions. So, um, you know, we're living in that world right. already. So, you know, perhaps Bitcoin. And it, it, what it sounds like there's some some fairly solid checks and balances built in to the the bitcoin philosophy or the bitcoin network that would prevent a uh, hopefully would prevent some sort of a takeover of the network and it sounds like it's 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 not a fairly difficult thing not trivial but not terribly difficult to just fork the network network if we do find out that someone has tried to take it over has taken it over um and so, yeah, I would agree with you. I, I, from what I've read, people don't really give the 51% attack much credence, yeah. but I could see that being used as a reason why governments would want to try to regulate the network, right? Regulate Bitcoin, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, because they're they're always going to use fear mm-hmm. as a as a motive um, to get people to support uh, regulating these types yeah, of things. Yeah, I, I agree. I 100% agree. Um, but you know. That actually speaks to, I think, the final topic I thought we could cover today, which is more about what is the uh, investment environment, monetary environment that we're we're moving into globally and specifically within the United States, and how how can that actually apply pressure to adoption? Because I, I think it's it's you know the risks that we talked about are real, so you need to be aware of that, and they they could slow down you know, uh, the adoption of Bitcoin is, is more of a, an asset, uh, store of value. And also I, I would say more, uh, broadly to the other cryptos, but there's the other side of it, which is that governments are moving into a challenging period of growth. And how is that going to play into the policies that they, uh, put forth? And then how is that going to play into a, a monetary system a value system that exists outside of their control, right? And, you know, which comes back to this whole idea, are they going to regulate or are they going to ban it? Uh, it's, there's, there's complexity here. 
right? In a um, in terms of how they're going to react to that. So I guess in your mind, Scott, how do you see? You know, if I if I ask you, okay, the next ten years play out, how do you see governments reacting to, uh, or or maybe not reacting to, but the policies that they're going to put forth into um, to kind of govern and manage their economy? <laughs> I think I would be the world's best financial planner if I could t- give you an answer on that <laughs> one. Um, it, you know, it's just so hard to say, especially since we're moving into this environment where. Congress is legislating less. The executive is managing by executive order or ruling by executive order more. It's almost at the point where, you know, a president can regulate something on a whim by just signing an executive Mm -hmm. order, um, which makes not just the crypto market or the financial world, but I mean, just everything a little more volatile. What I would say is that, yeah, they're going to start using some fears around crypto, right? The fears that this is going to be used by terrorist groups um, to get funding, um, you know, fears that it's being used by drug cartels to get drugs into the into the U.S. and into Western Europe to move forward with regulating it. I think um, as they see more people adopting crypto, they're going to start to worry about decreasing tax revenues. So they're going to start moving into um, more ways of controlling the network and mm-hmm. taxing it. Uh, so I think crypto's here to stay. and But I think the government is going to, at some point, there's going to be uh, what I think is going to be some sweeping crypto regulatory right. bill um, that's going to just implement a lot of stuff at once. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's going to get a lot of debate. I think it's going to, <laughs> it's it's going to be more tribalism. Yeah. I think, um, so. I think it's it's going to be an interesting ten years. I I don't see it. So it's I mean it's regulated to a certain extent now. I don't see it being. I see it being more regulated in ten right. years. Now exactly what that regulation looks like, I, right. I don't know. Um, and I've heard. There's not nothing even really concrete in the U.S. about what they're potentially going to do, at least not that I've heard about. I, I've heard bits and pieces of you know proposals and people thinking this or that, um, but I think maybe those are just trial balloons to see how the public sure. reacts. Um, and I think a lot has to do just, you know, we see it, it seems like lately every presidential election has been a reaction against the previous president. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think people, right, we had eight years of George Bush. I think Obama was a reaction to that. I think we had eight years of Obama. Trump was a reaction Mm -hmm. to that. Now, Biden, I, you know, I don't know. I I guess that was a reaction to Trump. Uh, I definitely Um, think it was, yeah. You know, so, yeah, so Biden, I, I read something this morning that he's already signed more executive orders in his first 80 whatever days than all previous four presidents or something like that combined. So I could see the Liberty folks, you know, really maybe starting to coalesce in the next election and possibly someone, you know, a a little, little more Liberty Mm -hmm. oriented might come into power. You know, I don't know. It's really, yeah, we can't. uh, Yeah. I I don't think there's a prediction that you can, you can put your finger on. So that's, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, What, yeah, I am. 
but yeah, I, I definitely think we're going to see more regulation. Yeah. I just don't really know what that regulation is going to look like. No, I, I think I think that's a trend that isn't going away. Is more that uh, bureaucratization of more and more parts of society, and and to me, it's a re, it's a response from the government to a shrinking or a stagnating economy. And um, I, I know there's a lot of disagreement on is, is you know, and this is specific to the U.S., is the U.S. economy stagnating? Is it is still in a growth area? Can we just revitalize it and return back to 20th century kind of growth rates that were higher? And I, I think that based on my understanding of what's happened in the last 30, 40 years, that we've seen a, a decline in, we, we went through the phase of after World War II of like really ramping up manufacturing uh, and then that turned into more of the service-based economy. But there were a lot of gains that we had from that as we put more people into, you know, we increased the education rates uh, in college, uh, college graduates, you had the, you know, the formation of multinational corporations. You got a lot of gains from a GDP perspective. But I, I think by looking at the calls that I see from people that I would say are on the left, like an Andrew Yang, which starts talking about, well, we need to start measuring GDP differently. We need to start adding in other components of well-being. You're seeing pressure on those numbers that it's not just about growth. We're not having a, enough growth for everyone to be happy. We're going to start having to see different ways of measuring it. That's, that's really just a way of saying, let's call it something else so we can measure other aspects of our lives so that we don't have to focus on the fact that we don't have as much growth. But if you don't have as much growth, you're, you're, you're pressured to do more of, well, let's take what we have and distribute it differently. And, and so you see that a lot with the, with the messaging right now on redistribution, taxing the wealthy, taking that money and putting into programs for, for the less well off. And whether you agree with those programs or not, I think it's, it's certainly evident that these, this is, you know, why some of these ideas have been um, discussed for a while. I don't think, I think they're reaching a fever pitch right now. And that tells me that we, again, we're having less growth. We're having more of a desire to redistribute. And if you couple that with this new push for MMT around spending more and worrying less about debt, and you, you, I would, I would have to believe that you're going to see a debasement effect going into the next 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, as more and more governments increase their spending, increase their debt levels, and assets are repriced based on that increase of the of the balance sheet. And so if that's the case, then I think to myself, okay, you have the government doing more, uh, you know, more bureaucracy, you've got more taxes, and and, and yes, it starts with the rich, but what you see often enough, I mean, the, the latest thing that we're hearing is, well, we're going to tax people, and this is in the United States, obviously, but we're going to tax people by the miles that they drive to pay for infrastructure. Um, and so you're seeing that the taxes are going to be spread out further and further. And um, I, I think there's going to be a question of, is there an alternative system? There's more pressure for alternatives that are going to give people access to, to sort of escape that system. And it doesn't have to be crypto necessarily. I just don't see anything other than crypto for people to go to. Right. Uh, this is this is what I've been challenged with. My my mindset has been uh, I was I fully believed in 2017 we were going to see a crash in the market. Uh, I, I really did believe that. I thought we we're going to see rampant inflation. Of course, that prediction proved to be entirely inaccurate. 
And, you know, why is that? Well, it was the Ray Dalio kind of credit cycle uh, issue where I, I miss, I didn't, my model of the environment wasn't accurate. And so uh, I didn't really take into account the, the sort of the way money moves through the financial systems, whether or not you could sustain a credit bubble for a longer period of time. And what I think I'm now seeing is it's kind of that uh, same question I'm asking myself, does the market, do you, do you just keep, do you actually have a crash of some kind or are you just going to see prices going up and, you know, money supply going up, taxes going up, everything is kind of moving up, but it's just becoming less valuable as it does that. And people wanting an escape valve. And um, so I, I, I just have to believe this is, this is going to be an area where people are going to be putting more money because again, I just don't know where else they put it. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, I think it's going to be a matter of education. I know the Austrian economists are, are big into this idea of, you know, we don't know when the crash is coming, but the crash is coming. And, you know, a lot of them are split over crypto mm-hmm. or gold. Um, but I think most of them recommend, a lo- you know, yeah. money in both, you know, like hedge your bets. Um, unless you're Peter Schiff, then it's all gold. <laughs> um, so, uh, it, yeah, that, I mean, that's a good point. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up, and you know, I'm certainly not a fan of regulation, but I could see some government regulation being a boon to Bitcoin because that may make the average person look at it as a little more safe and a little more right. legitimate. Uh, you know, I think there's still this idea that Bitcoin is the world of drug dealers and, you know, illegal weapons, many, you know, illegal gun sellers and things like that. Um, so if the government steps in and regulates it, that's, that's almost, you know, a seal right. of approval that, you know, we approve of Bitcoin. Um, you know, so from that aspect, I could see some regulation driving adoption. Um, I would still prefer no regulation, right. but, you know, let's let's look at the silver yeah. lining here. Um, you know, that's a possibility. Yeah, I I think it right. And, you know, we talk about layer two at the beginning of this conversation. Uh, you know, one layer two is ETFs. And um, there was a Canadian ETF that was launched that was specific to Bitcoin. Um, you have a couple of trusts, like the Grayscale Trust. Um, but the ETF, I think, is where a lot of people are looking for kind of that exposure. And uh, that that just launched earlier this year. Uh, you're seeing several companies that are trying to get a, a Bitcoin ETF launched this year in the U.S. And you could see where if you know if they get that approval for the ETF, it's just another layer of like you said, the regulatory sort of regime is saying, listen, this is while there's risk to it, we're not going to ban it, and it's not it's not more risky than maybe some alternative assets. Uh, from from the criminality as the um, perspective, you know, all of those yeah. add to this idea that it's it's becoming more commonplace. Yeah, I, I I think maybe part of what's slowing the adoption on a more commercial level is maybe you have the bank standing there looking at the government, going, "Okay, tell us what you're going to do, so we know whether we should get into yeah. this or not." The banks looking at the financial institutions, going, "Okay, tell us what you're going to do, so we can decide if we need to regulate right. it or not." Um, and so maybe it's just a matter of one side flinching first. Um, you know, a thought that came up too is if enough of the banks and the financial institutions get involved in Bitcoin, then how much, how much influence are they going to have over the regulations? Yeah. Uh, you better bet that they're going to be in there trying to get the regulations written in a way that's going to benefit them. 
and then we could end up seeing you know a bit of a replay of the whole robin hood uh gamestop right. thing where you know the financial institutions are allowed to play more games with with bitcoin than the average investor or you know the average joe six pack is allowed <laughs> to play so at that point does bitcoin i mean does it essentially become valueless yeah. in, in terms of the philosophy behind it and is there anything that the bitcoin the bitcoiners the the maximalists and people in control of the network can do yeah, about that i I think it's, that that is, a, and actually, if you think about risks, perhaps that's one of the the greatest risks to the network. If the ethos is is around being a uh, cyberpunk, cypherpunk, um, outside of the traditional world asset, and all of a sudden it's primarily owned by banks and hedge funds, have you have you lost the as you said the sort of uh, Ma and Pa kind of Main Street people that were sort of the the first intended users, and um, does that sort of take going back full circle to the conversation on on value? If if most of this is subjective or um, extrinsic value, how do we how does that change uh, when the uh, when those institutions have begun to play, right and um, you know, again, something to see uh, play out. I, I think it's a, it's an interest. It's a it's a fascinating experiment. Um, I, I I do grow more confident that it's it's the best play um, to have some exposure to from a you know a risk reward perspective in the next ten years. Um, so, and what I mean by that is, and this isn't investment advice, uh, but in terms of how I would think of investments, it would be something like you know. I want to have one one percent, two percent in my portfolio of of this of this type of asset, and I look at it and I say, okay, I've got if I've got a hundred dollars to invest, I'm going to put some of that in less risky stuff, and maybe I'm going to say I want five percent of that uh, going into high risk, high reward. Um, well, then I'd put two dollars into it. Right? That's that's kind of the way it would break down in my mind. Um, that this this kind of fits the high risk, high reward uh, benchmark. And, you know, maybe everything else goes into ETFs or index funds. Uh, I wouldn't put anything in bonds and treasuries right now because the yield is so low and inflation is going to destroy. I mean, you, you can't. The hurdle rate is, is well above the, the bond and treasury market. Uh, so there's just no value. Uh, you're actually losing value if you hold those. So, um, you know, but that, I, think that's, I think that's the play in the next 10 years, um, personally. And again, not investment advice, but uh, that's the way I think of it. Yeah, I think over the next 10 years, we're definitely going to see more widespread adoption of, if not Bitcoin, some mm-hmm. other crypto. Um, just not sure what that adoption is going to look like. Yeah. Um, but like I said, you know, the market is still fairly small. And as more people move into it, I think there's just a lot of room for growth there. Yeah. And, and to put some numbers around when we say small, uh, it's you know you can look at it from an asset class perspective and it's only a trillion dollars which is a tenth of gold and um, you know currencies trade at four trillion um, a day right that's how much currency flow happens so it's it's small in that perspective it's also small in terms of users uh, I've seen some estimates that you know anywhere between three and five percent of the world's population has any exposure at all to crypto and it could be higher than that let's just say it's eight percent right uh, or even ten percent 
we're saying that 90% of the world doesn't have any exposure at all, right? So we're still a long ways off from this having a, a massive impact on our on our globe and our world. Uh, as you're saying, it, I mean, the adoption is still early days. Uh, and, and the problem is, is that a lot of the adoption that you hear about is, is sort of the, the meme followers on social media that are very young, that are accustomed to change lightning speed. And, and so they're expecting this to just, you know, as they say, go to the moon uh, overnight. And, and in some ways, I mean, it's, it's been incredibly, the adoption rate has, has been incredibly fast. Uh, and then if you compare it to the actual like global, you know, population, it's, it's still quite young. Right. Um, so yeah, there's, there's still, as, as we've said, there's, there's still some challenges that have to be overcome for this to be adopted. Uh, I think we're, I think we're in agreement that we, we do expect adoption to continue to grow over the next 10 years. Uh, but it, it's not a, um, it's not a straight line. Yeah. And I've heard some folks say that, you know, Bitcoin's still in that, that phase where one person or a small group of people can, can still move yep. the market in directions that they want it to go. Um, you know, something like someone like Elon Musk, you know, tweets out something positive about Bitcoin and, you know, you see the response right. in the market. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, but I think it's, yeah, I think it's going to move beyond that point within the next yeah. few years um, to where it's going to be a little harder to do that. And then that might help with some of the volatility. Absolutely. And, you know, it depends on who you ask. I, I've seen several charts. The volatility uh, is, is actually decreasing with time. And the thought being that once it hits a, a certain critical mass, the volatility would be much lower. But, you know, again, that's that's a forecast or speculation, depending how you look at it. A lot of people are going to say, no, it's going to continue to be this volatile for a long time. And then some people see volatility as a feature, not a bug at this stage in, the, in its adoption cycle, um, where you're being you're you're basically being rewarded for being an early adopter uh, by taking on that that additional volatility. Um, but again, not advanced, not, not, not investment advice, not even like really having a, an opinion on that. Um, but just something to, to contemplate as you're, as you're looking at your investment in this, I think yeah. the, um, speaking of, of Elon, um, Tesla, which, which had a stake, it did a stake in, in Bitcoin. It was several billion dollars. Uh, I want to say the end of Q4 or Q1 of, of, 2021, they just sold out 10% of their stake. And some people were commenting, oh my gosh, he's pumping Bitcoin and he's, he's selling it. And, and I thought, well, that's, that's not how treasury management works. You know, the reason you have something on a, on a, the balance sheet of a business is because you, you want the liquidity and the security to be able to, to use it later, right? For operational expenses that may come at a later time or for, uh, maturing debt that you have to you have to pay pay for, and um, you know that's that's exactly what Elon said in his Master of Coin, as he calls him, who's the the CFO at uh, at uh, a Tesla. But he he said like, listen, we we sold off ten percent. We we had a thesis that we could retain some Bitcoin on our balance sheet at the appropriate time. We could sell it and have liquidity in the market, which gives us the liquidity that we actually need to operate. So we did a ten percent sell to actually prove that out. And so far, it's worked out very well for us. And um, I think that's a what you're seeing is sort of these early experiments um, on, on many different fronts where people are trying out to say, well, how does this work with our traditional understanding of finance? And, um, you know, this is one experiment. I, they're not all going to end this well. 
but they they didn't in that well for for corporations uh, with all the other experiments that they ran right um so anyways yeah it's it's an interesting time interesting time to be to be watching and, and looking at the market yeah and and maybe that's the big takeaway here is this is an yeah. experiment we don't know where it's gonna go um but it's gonna be Absolutely. fun watching it so so guys, we're, we're going to wrap up here. I think I think this was a great conversation. And if you think about what we talked about today, I would say your takeaways are, you know, do you understand value? How are you looking at uh, subjectively or objectively when you look at a value of any asset that you have? Um, I think I think that's just a great concept to to, to take when you're uh, looking at traditional markets um, or you're looking at you know Bitcoin or crypto or just other uh, assets in your life. Uh, you know, when you're looking at crypto specifically, there's a series of risks that you need to understand and you need to ask yourself, do you understand what those risks are? And if you don't understand what those risks are, it's a great opportunity to spend more time researching and understanding what they are. Um, it's it's all too easy to, again, FOMO into buying something when you don't really understand what it is and how it operates and what are the risks that could that could impact its its value. And the third is, Really, it's it's asking ourselves where do we think the market is going forward, and when we say market, we mean the economy, and and that's going to trickle down into society at large. What are we going to see as the pressure moving forward in the next decade? We can't predict what twenty thirty is going to look like, but I think we can identify the trends that are gaining steam, and and ask ourselves reasonable questions about. What are those trends and how are they going to impact people's investment decisions, people's spending decisions? And if we understand what those are and we run those that, that sort of thought experiment, we can make better decisions thinking about probabilistically, well, how, how, how much of a risk is that? How much of an opportunity is it? You know, Peter Thiel was asked, I want to say four or five years ago, what do you think about Bitcoin? He said, well, I think it's got a 5% chance of, of making it. And if it makes it, um, it will have huge value. And, and I think that's the way you should be asking yourself about you know some of these investments again high risk high reward if it only has a five percent chance of making it well you know how much money do I want to put into that if I think it's going to have to make a 20x or 30x or 100x return on my on my money that could just go to zero so some really good concepts here uh, love the conversation I'm sure this isn't our last conversation on Bitcoin there's so much to cover here and uh, you know check check out um, this podcast we got other podcasts on, on Bitcoin we also have some some uh, other conversations talking about MMT and um, yeah I think there's a lot here that, that you're gonna enjoy so uh, you know check those out find us on mentallyinscripted.com wherever you're listening to the podcast give us a thumbs up give us a, give us a review we'd love to hear from you and, and until then take care. 